Hello, and welcome back to the Side Out Stronger podcast. I am, as always, Coach Jordan, and we are here to talk everything volleyball to keep you on the court. Today, I say we, I'm say i about to say that we have a very special guest, but you know, all of our guests are special in their own way. But uh, today we have our resident physiotherapist, Jared Maynard. We're going to talk everything about pain, recovery, how to avoid pain, how to get out of pain, what does pain mean, should I foam roll, all these kind of questions, and uh, we get a little spicy in this one, not going to lie, if, uh, if you're adverse to the odd uh, spicy language, it might not be the one for you, but uh, it's okay, because you guys are resilient. Anyways, let's get to it. All right, welcome back, guys and gals. Uh, we have a amazingly special guest today. We have the Jazzy J man himself, Jared Maynard. Uh, Jared is our pain rehab, so many other things specialist, and we're incredibly lucky to have him. And Jared, on the spot, is going to do his twenty second intro. So twenty second intro, man. I mean, I don't know what else there is to say other than I'm, I'm the jazz man. No, but my name is Jared. I'm a physical therapist currently in the Kitchener Waterloo area here in Ontario, Canada land. Um, I'm also the owner of Unbreakable Strength, which is a, an online uh, strength coaching company uh, for strength athletes. Um, and I'm also part of the clinical athlete team. Uh, so I have my hands in all the different projects and um, really kind of focus on making sure that we set up our continuing education courses and also hop on the podcast with my man or my mans, uh, Quinn Hennick and John Flagg, um, who you would know John fairly well, seeing as he makes coach, you strong. He's coach squared. Coach squared. And rebuild stronger. Just all, he's the Uber coach. That's what he refers to himself as these days. Yeah. <laughs> His head's getting too big. It's, gotta, it's massive. But it's covered by the hair. So Sorry, John. It's fine. <laughs> I'm not at all. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, man, that's me. And it's, uh, it's become more and more of a passion of mine to, in my own ways, try to, to bring more, easily digestible and accessible information for, for people, athletes, and people who just want to stay active, especially around pain and, and how to bridge the, the gap really between rehab and performance so that people don't feel like they're lost in the weeds quite as much. And they know what to focus on uh, when, if, and when they get hurt and how they can stay doing the things they want to do. So it's not this big, scary thing that it can sometimes otherwise be. So you're telling me you just do, you just tell people how to foam roll. That's, that's the all day, every job. day foam roll, this, 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 you will basically live forever. You are impenetrable. You can, <laughs> yep, exactly. Sweet. All right. So let's dive into it. Jared, what is pain? What is pain? Baby, don't hurt me anymore. Um, <laughs> this is a complicated question that Jared's gotten really good at condensing into shorter versions. So what is pain and why is it the end of the world? That is the the million dollar question, isn't it? So to frame it, like let's let's put it this way: the definition of pain continues to be revised. I think the uh, the the group, the International Association for the Study of Pain, put out their revised definition as of 2020. Um, I think the one we had before that was 2016. It just continues to be revised, and because we can't really agree yet fully for a long period of time on, on what it is and how to best define it. It's one of those weird things where everyone understands the experience of pain one way or another. You've talked about pain, it transcends cultures, it transcends language. You know, we can pick up on nonverbal expressions and we kind of understand what's going on. But if we try to dig a little deeper 
and explain it, it becomes really, really murky, really fast. So that doesn't help us. If we're in pain, trying to understand why do I hurt? What's going on? What does this mean? How do I get back to the things that I care about? We kind of need some explanation. So the definition, let's start there, that we have right now, the most updated one from the IASP is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So a lot of words, word salad. Bunch of fancy science jargon right there. Yeah. And it probably leaves most people reading it or finished reading it and thinking, okay, cool. Still have no idea what that means. So I think some of the big takeaways are pain is an unpleasant experience. You know, by definition, pain is not fun. It's uh, it's just not fun. It's, it's negative or it can feel negative or unpleasant. That's probably the best word there. Um, and it's multifactorial. If anybody spends time kind of perusing the online evidence-based rehab and performance world, multifactorial is a phrase that you're going to encounter before too long, right? And try to my hope here is that people can watch this video and come away with something that's actionable where they don't feel like they're, they're more confused, but rather they've got a, a decent understanding for them here and now. So for the multifactorial side of it, humans are complex organisms, right? Um, this leads us into what we're going to talk about anyway, in terms of different models of pain. And for anyone not familiar with the different models of pain, these are just ways that people have come up with over time, tried to adapt and evolve so that we can understand what's all going on with pain and how we perceive things. It's just trying to explain our experiences. So it's been the case for a long time where we've had this sort of what we would call the biomedical model, where the, the basic idea of the biomedical model is that pain is always explainable. There's always some root cause of the pain, and it should be a discoverable cause. Usually it's due to some sort of organic or structural change. So we should be able to find that source, explain why you're feeling what you're feeling, and then fix that thing. That seems to work well enough in certain circumstances. You touch a hot stove, your hand hurts where you touched it. It, it makes sense. Or you roll your ankle, your ankle hurts because you rolled it. You figured hurts in the area you expected to, you know, that kind of checks out. You pull on that thread a little bit more. It starts to make a lot less sense. If you look at people who, you know, have had a bunch of testing done, they can't find something on the imaging, but they still have this, this pain or this experience, or, um, you know, we could, we could find other more extreme examples that really just drive home the point that humans, we're not just a collection of tissues. We don't, don't just have bones and muscles and nerves and blood and all this other stuff. Like those are important. Those matter, but humans also have these psychological and social components to us. And hence the name of this other model, biopsychosocial. And again, I'm uh, deliberately avoiding getting too far into the weeds as far as, you know, the intricate details, but suffice it to say, humans are affected certainly by physical things, rolling the ankle, touching a hot stove, coming down awkwardly from, from a block and like, you just don't land the way you want to. He right? knows his audience, folks. Hey, I aim to please. So those matter. It also matters how um, things like our nutrition and our sleep are. How's our stress management? What is our physical and social environment like? Uh, what past experiences have we had 
that resemble what we're going through right now. What do we think about pain? What are our beliefs around it? So hopefully just even saying that people can start to appreciate, okay, this can get really complicated really quickly. But again, I keep saying it. I want to make sure we don't get too far into the weeds and we come away with something. So I'm going to try to come full circle because you just simply asked me what pain is. Um, so pain is this is weird, complex experience that everybody experiences, but experiences it differently and expresses it differently. Um, it can be associated with actual tissue damage, or it can feel like there's actual tissue damage. Um, it's not always the case, but recognizing the different factors that go into feeling pain, I think we can look at it as a bunch of different opportunities or doors for us to kind of get our foot into. Because if the physical side of things matters, if our sleep and nutrition matters, if our social environment or beliefs around pain matter, depending on the person and the situation, some of these might matter more than others. But all we're looking to do is get our foot in a door and start to move the needle, build a little bit of momentum towards where the person wants to go. And as we do that, we can start to get our foot into another door and just treat the person as a whole and ultimately move them to the point where they're, where they're happy and they're doing the things that they want to be doing. So how, how many people do you figure I totally confused or put to sleep with that Jordan? I don't think anybody's sleeping. I mean, aside from the jazziness, that's, that's inevitable, but it's fine. It comes with the territory. No, that's great. It's, it's, it's setting the foundation without getting too much in the weeds. And I like that. I'd like to go over a couple of examples that could drive this home. And these are examples I'm sure you've got a million. Um, there's a couple that have come across my feed a couple times that have resonated with me really nicely um, that people might be able to take some of these components and put them together a bit nicer. So the first one is um, kids. And it's a weird place to start. But there's these amazing videos. Well, they're, they kind of, you know, they're not the most ethical if you really think about it, but it's fine. It's people holding their kids Mm-hmm. And then what they do is they go close to a wall. I'm sure you've seen this, but for other people who haven't. And then they take their other hand and they smack the wall. And then they coddle the kid as if they're as if the kid had bashed their head in the wall. They're like, okay, okay, you're okay, okay, okay. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And yeah. the kid starts freaking out yeah. and yeah. crying. And they're worried about their pain. They're freaking out. All of these social cues are telling them something is wrong. Mm-hmm. In reality, there's literally nothing happened. And to me, that was just the exact opposite of a case where there's a little comic strip that always sticks in my head. It's on the first, yeah, (laughs) on the first panel, um, there's a kid walking by and then the second one, a meteor comes down and hits him. And there's a woman and a man saying there, the woman says, oh my God. And the the guy just says, no, no, give it time. The kid walks out and said, dad, did you see that? (laughs) Yeah, I did kiddo. Very cool. Good job. (laughs) And again, it's nothing to dive in too much, but it just sets the idea of maybe there's more to this than just physical experience. And that kind of goes into the, the psychological and the social bit more. Yeah, man. I mean, those are fantastic examples, you know, and um, I've got kids at home, anybody who's, who's got kids or just shoot, even spends time around kids. has probably seen the fact that um, most of the time kids are looking for social cues and it's, particularly I'm sure I'm, I'm a little bit fuzzy in terms of my developmental periods here, but I'm sure it matters more at certain time within certain time frames than others, but 
seen it with my own kids. They'll fall down. They'll look around like how are, how are mom and dad reacting to this? And that matters even for those of us who aren't kids as we're into our teen and adult years and, and through the lifespan where, okay, maybe it's not as black and white as someone else looks shocked or concerned and suddenly we start freaking out, but that, that dynamic still exists. And depending on how our friends and family, let's say, talk about, I'm going to pick on a couple of things that are really common arthritis. It's like, Oh, you've got arthritis. Like, Oh, that, that means you're going to get a knee replacement or back pain. Oh man, you probably slipped the disc. Um, you know, insert any number of other examples here or how they're how people's health care practitioners, whether physicians or physios or whoever else are talking about these things. Like you've got terrible posture or you don't move well, you're at risk of getting hurt, this and that. Um, and, you know, other examples of athletes or people that maybe we look up to or know of and what happened to them. These all form our beliefs and attitudes around, around these various things, around injury, around um, movement, around healing times, you know, and there's, there's not anything inherently wrong with not wanting to be injured or not wanting to experience pain. That is a natural thing. That's part of why pain is protective and part of why pain is meant to be a, a learning thing. Cause you touch a hot stove once and it sucks and hopefully you don't do it again. Right. Uh-oh. But well, one never knows, but still um, the, the difficulty is when maybe someone sustains an injury and they can't do the things that they want to or need to do without that pain. And it creates that association of I do this, then I feel pain or then I feel bad. And that can lead to things like fear avoidance and just not wanting to, to do those things. And it can be tricky, right? So I guess maybe the, the point I want to illustrate here is that our social environment, our past experiences, our beliefs and ex- our beliefs and our expectations definitely matter. And even though I picked on a couple of things like arthritis and slip discs and that sort of thing, there's nothing inherently wrong about identifying those things if they exist. And that's sort of another conversation around what do we know about these things? What does it mean? How do we deal with them? That sort of, that sort of stuff, but how we have those conversations really matters because you can take two people, let's just, state physios. I can point the finger because I am one. Two physios saying, or one of whom is saying, you slipped the disc and like you're going to have back pain for a long time now. And the other one's saying, yeah, I think this might be a disc-related issue. Here's what we know about it. Here's what I think matters for you. Here's what we can do now. And here's how we're going to get you back to where you want to be. Does that make sense? Do you like this plan? Should we change anything? And like we're going to figure it out together. Of those two, even though those are very kind of surface level, quick examples, one of them, or they they have very distinctly different outcomes in terms of how they make the person receiving that feel and how confident they feel and whether or not they think they're going to be okay. So I'll rein myself back in because otherwise we'd be here for another four hours. I'll do one last example Mm -hmm. along this because I want to make sure it's super practical and I'm sure I need to unrein you just a hair. Just a little bit. So just a bit. <laughs> Let me go. All right. Hold me back. Hold me back. <laughs> so let's say somebody, I just want to make this super practical. Somebody's playing volleyball and they come down from a, <coughs> excuse me, they come down from a hit and they tweak their back. 
Hmm. And they think, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap. And whatever happens over the next little while, they become more and more hesitant about their back. And mm-hmm. say before this, they were nice and active. They did things like deadlifts and squats and all this good stuff. And they played sports and they walked their dog and all this fun stuff. If things aren't dealt with properly, mm-hmm. there, ha- there tends to be this kind of vicious cycle that I've learned and, learned and seen. Mm-hmm. It turns into, okay, my back hurts. I need to be careful because somebody told me to be careful. So what does careful mean? Okay, well, careful means doing less, obviously, right? Because, you know, I'm being careful. If I do less, I become less capable because I become more deconditioned. I become weaker. I become whatever your classification is. And if you don't fix that, what does that turn into? Well, you're less capable. And if you go play your sports or do your activities with less chronic load and less capabilities, you could be more likely to get hurt. What happens when you get hurt? People tell you to slow down. What happens when you slow down? You do less. And you just go through this negative, 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 negative loop until one day you realize that you're afraid to go down and pick up a pencil because you're afraid it hurt your back. You're not playing volleyball. You're not walking your dog anymore. You're not sleeping right. You're not doing all these things. And it just kind of happens. And years later, you're wondering how we got here. Yeah. And it all starts with this fear and this idea that we need to be careful when something goes wrong long term mm-hmm. so that's how i see it correct me if i'm out of my element here not at all no you're you're so on the money here and you know to even take that further i mean you and i i know we're on the same page in terms of how we feel about uh what we would what we would term nocebic language and for those unfamiliar that's a nocebo is um something that doesn't actually have uh, a direct impact, but will, or in terms of, let's say, it's, I don't know, let's imagine that we took pills and like one, they were both sugar pills, but we told somebody, Hey, that's actually cyanide. Poison. Yeah. Um, it's not cyanide, but if they believe that it was, that would have an impact on how they felt like physical manifestations, how they thought that sort of thing. So um, Jordan and I both, think the same in terms of uh, making sure that the words that we use in our explanations of things are accurate, right? We're not making claims that we can't stand behind. What we can stand behind that we've got lots of research on is that that cycle not only exists and is very, very prevalent, unfortunately, but that has ramifications all the way down the lifespan where if people do less now, we know that it tends to be a trend where the more that people do earlier in life or the more they can sustain, the more they then carry, the more they then carry through their entire lifespan, which leads to lower disease risk, leads to better quality of life, longer lifespan, just good things. The inverse is also true. If we do less of those things or we drop off from the things that we enjoy, you know, we were afraid to engage in those things and we have we're deconditioned, our risk of disease goes up, our life expectancy goes down, the quality of life also goes down. So, you know, I, I can say that, and it sounds a little scary, honestly, you know, and that's part of why, from my part, I'm quite passionate about making sure that people avoid that cycle in the first place or get out of that cycle. And the good news is we can do both of those things for sure. People do it every day. That's the business that Jordan and I are in. Um, but we know those ramifications are real 
and we want the best four people. So whether that means enjoying, you know, your enjoying your performance on the court right now and recognize or feeling like you're actually reaching your potential or whether that means enjoying your life down the road, those don't have to be separate. Those can be very much the same. So anyway, going to come off my soapbox in a second, but <clears throat> to your point, yes, that cycle does exist and it matters quite a bit to address the fear and, and recognize that having some fear after an injury is totally normal. It's the most normal thing in the world. <clears throat> the thing that we really want to focus on is how we address it. Then what are the steps that we next or that we take next? What makes sense for that person, for that athlete? What do they want for themselves? Where do they want to be both long-term and short-term? And then how do we start to make a game plan working backwards from where they want to be to where they are? How do we start to move the needle and how do we build that trust? How do we build the trust that they have in us and in the plan that we can get them where they want to go and roll with the punches that inevitably come. And it's a high level overview. There's a lot of complexity. It's tough as anything sometimes, but, but it can be done. It's, it's been done. It continues to be done. And, and I hope that people take away that as the main idea. Like, yes, this is something that should be addressed and it can be, especially if you're working with somebody who knows, who knows your thing, especially if it's volleyball, you know, like, yeah, there we go. We've talked about what is pain. Um, we've talked about the complexities, what can be happen if we don't deal with fear, all of that good stuff. Now let's, let's crap on some stuff. Um, <laughs> talk about recovery. This, yeah. this nebulous idea of recovery, uh, what it is, what it isn't, what, how you get the most out of it and how you can avoid things that really probably don't matter as much as you think they would. Mm -hmm. All right. What is recovery? What is recovery? That's a great question. And I think similar to, to a lot of things like pain, I'm not sure there's one definition that everybody's agreed on yet, but maybe we'll say it's one's ability to return to a certain level of performance after an exposure to something, whether it's training, playing a game, whatever, <clears throat> how well you can get back to that that level of performance that you were at or want to be at. So it is sort of this nebulous thing. Um, again, we know that humans are complex, so we're affected by things like how long and how difficult the training session was or how hard we played or, you know, what, what that match consisted of, how many times did we jump and land and all that stuff. But then also how has the stress level been in the body the, the human organism is not great at compartmentalizing stress of like, this is my work stress. This is my lack of sleep. This is my relationship stress. This is my stuff from volleyball. It's just all stress. I looked like I was about to do like some super, super duper, like Kung yeah. Fu. I was waiting for the Kung Fu stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, so how, how is our sort of stress management, stress balance there? How's nutrition been? Um, and all these things. So, yeah. As far as what recovery is, we'll say it's returning to a certain level of performance. And there are a lot of things that people say will, will improve recovery in certain ways. And it's sketchy at best. All right. Let's, but before we get too cynical, because I'm sure we'll both get there. <laughs> it's, it's what are the things that actually go into recovery? What are, oh. the, what are the foundations of good recovery? The stuff that doesn't make people any money and are never sexy. Perfect. So <laughs> good sleep. Perfect. It's getting enough sleep 
and enough sleep is going to vary from person to person based on a bunch of things. But let's just say for the sake of argument, if you're getting seven to eight hours of sleep on average per night, that's probably a decent place to be, or at least to be shooting for. And we have a whole video on sleep from a uh, occupational therapist. So look, look at you. this ecosystem. Oh Man. My gosh. It's my like, gosh. he's thought about all of this. Um, <laughs> so sleep, sleep, nutrition, making sure you're eating enough for your performance goals, making sure that you are uh, eating foods that sit well with you, consuming enough protein, that you're hydrating well enough, getting enough electrolytes, all that stuff. Uh, stress management. And again, stress from all the different sources that includes training, includes playing, includes everything else. Um, so having things that act as your outlets um, and maybe part of that stress piece ends up being having, um, having support or having a good or as good of a social environment as you can. I recognize fully that is harder than ever these days, just given the, uh, the thing that shall not be named. Um, yeah, that's right. But, you know, having people that you can lean on, whether it's teammates, coaches, family, friends, you know, those, those all have been shown in the research to be the biggest drivers of performance and recovery. But again, they're the stuff that isn't glitzy or sexy. So people forget about them. So your athletes really get all of these other fancy recovery modalities and you're just, you're just waiting to give it to us because we haven't really like paid you for it. Right. Like there's bigger answers out there. Right. <laughs> uh, right? It's behind, it's behind the paywall. Yeah. That's uh... <laughs> so everyone needs to Venmo Jared some money right now and he'll maybe tell us the rest. I mean, there's gotta be more, right? It's, it's gotta gotta, be more. The beginnings of it are on my whiteboard back there. Oh, there you go. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's dive into some of the other stuff because <laughs> Through our other video series, we're going to talk a lot about nutrition, talk a lot about stress management, and Jared will go into things like stress management later and what that actually looks like, uh, both for a volleyball player and a general athlete, um, in the gym, out of the gym, all that good stuff. But let's talk about the stuff that you actually want to hear about. Let's just go down the list. What from from things that people do most to least? Should I foam roll? before my game, during my game, after my game, in my gym session, when I get up, when I go to bed. All, all the time, things. every day for the rest of your life. Um, should you, you can, I'll say there's a time and a place, but here's the caveat. The, the narrative or the explanation that has existed for, for a while, as far as what a foam roller does, like it's breaking up adhesions and loosening up scar tissue. Like it's not, it's not, we, as far as we have in the research, we know it takes a metric. I don't know if you swear in these videos, Jordan. Do you like to keep it PG or family friendly? Come on. <laughs> I know it's you, but that's, that's fucking go. <laughs> that's fucking go, bud. It takes a metric shit ton of force to come anywhere close to actually changing the structure or remodeling the tissues, connective tissue and otherwise. So I bring that up because it begs the question, well, if it's not breaking down the fucking adhesions, See, now, now you've really let me lose. Sorry. Sorry, world. I love them lose. Here I, I we go. Um, it's, if it's not breaking down the adhesions, what is it doing? And foam rolling, like seems like a lot of the other modalities that people tend to use or spend their time on, more than anything, they're probably just changing the perception of an area 
for a period of time. They're making it feel less tight, less sore. And that's not to say that it doesn't have an effect because people will often foam roll or get a massage or use something else and the range of motion is better or they had some pain or some achiness before and now they don't have it afterwards. So, you know, my stance on it has changed over the years. Where I'm at these days is if if you understand what it's doing and importantly, what it's not doing. And if it can help you, if you can invest the minimum amount of time in that stuff, whether it's foam rolling or stretching or even just warming up, and I am a proponent of warming up properly, but I want to keep that time efficient because you don't get time back. So if you can spend the least amount of time doing that stuff, minimum viable product, but still be ready to do what it is you're going to do, whether it's playing a game, whether it's training or whatever, go for it. Um, so foam rolling, I'm not against, I mean, I, here's a hot, here's a hot take. I will use a foam roller for my upper back, especially in my hip flexors before I train. Evidence-based card revoked, sir. <laughs> I'm just going to, I figure that, oh, that's actually the clinical athlete team right now. I'm fired. So thanks. <laughs> so yeah, time and a place. I think it's important to know what it does, what it doesn't do. A lot of people will spend an inordinate amount of time foam rolling while well, they'll They'll spend 15, 20 minutes doing all the little spots. They want to do it and they want to spend their time that way. Okay. You can adults, you're adults. You can do what you want, uh, but you can absolutely do other stuff that will give you better return on that time. So let's encapsulate that in one quick message. Does foam rolling reduce your risk of injury um, more than just warming up or being active? No, it does not. It can be part of, there we go. It can be part of warming up. If you like it and it seems to help, great. It's not a magic bullet at all. Cool. All right. Let's let's keep going. We're on a <laughs> roll now. We're, we're fired up. All right. Let, let's stick in the getting ready for activities kind of sphere or limited range of motion sphere. Something like dry needling. Mm-hmm. Because we're there. You know, this is we're there. people off. Here we are. So the report is that, so the idea that has been put forth by some people is that we're getting in there and we're breaking up these little adhesions, right? Mm-hmm. And those adhesions are restricting your range of motion and we can break them up or disrupt them of some kind, then we can get more range of motion and that can make us feel better, get less injured and that kind of stuff. Let's, let's take the Derek miles approach for half a second here. <laughs> How big are these adhesions? Well, do they, they exist? <laughs> that, that's the question we got to start with. Um, that even that's in question as far as, define an adhesion where are they how do we reliably find them because if we can't find them with like imaging how the fuck are you finding them with your fingers reliably so level three level that's it's the level three course yeah so i mean where i'm at based on what i've seen in the research and this is the source will continue to be the source of many hot instagram comment thread fights for many years to come it may not ever get resolved but honestly i'm not interested in that stuff um based on what i've seen and have been exposed to whether these these adhesions exist you know maybe can we reliably find them i mean can't even really agree on a definition for them um so it doesn't seem like we can reliably find them or find the thing that fits that definition over and over again so that's not reliable Let's grant that they do exist. Is the needle or is dry needling breaking them up? I don't believe it is. And 
again, I, I haven't seen research to support that idea at all. Where I think maybe you've got a leg to stand on is if you were to say that dry needling, like most other modalities, affects the perception of the area. Maybe it feels less restricted. Why is that? Probably some sort of, here's another fancy word, neurophysiological effect. It just means it feels laser. different. Yeah, right. <laughs> laser. Um, it just feels different, you know, and it's some sort of input that maybe, maybe someone's, someone responds well to and they can move better after. And that's fine, you know. Or even a hot take on that. Somebody tells you you need it and then you happen to feel better after because the expectation is you're supposed to feel better. There you go. And that's another, this is why we started off by saying humans are complex and the, the things that we're told, the ways we talk about things matter because this is the sort of effect they can have. So for dry needling, um, what was the core of the question? Are we getting that like, oh. <laughs> is, is, is it good? Is it bad? What it comes down to is if I'm in pain or if I'm trying to avoid being in pain, is are these modalities something I should focus on? Gotcha. My answer would be no. Can they be things that you may find useful or you may enjoy taking part in? Sure. Am I saying that you should never do them? No. What I am saying is that if you were to look at this as a hierarchy, the things that are going to matter the most, if you're in pain or you're dealing with some sort of issue and you want to get out of that slash get back to doing something that you care about, i.e. volleyball, probably a safe assumption here, um, or just something else that you enjoy. Um, we want to, what we're trying to do is calm stuff down and build stuff back up, you know, to rip that directly from my man, Greg Lehman. So it's always going to come down to having the most to do with what, what can we keep you doing here and now? How can we keep you active to a avoid building up that fear of whatever that thing is, but also not overloading your body or not overloading you here and now. How's your sleep? How's your nutrition? How's your stress? Let's talk about it. Let's figure out what's going to move the needle and keep it real simple. It's going to be a process. Injuries tend to take a while to heal longer than we want. The healing times vary. So having a plan that makes sense now and that will evolve with you over time and having somebody you can fall back on or collaborate with through that process, knowing that you're not figuring out alone, that you got someone who's got your back literally or figuratively. Um, those are going to be the biggest things, things like dry needling or other modalities. Sure. You can add them in if you want. Again, you can use your time, however the heck you want. Um, it's probably going to change perception more than anything. doesn't seem to be a magic bullet for anything that I've seen or that I know of. Um, so it's, if you will, it's icing on the cake, but I like chocolate icing better than dry needling icing. I don't know why we went, that's, that's, where, that's, where like we're at. Okay. that's where we're at. Bringing this all together. Why do we give a shit about this? Like, why are we just here talking about this? Yeah. To me, it comes down to, and I'm sure Jared has his own version of his take, it's dependency and fear. Mm -hmm. It comes down to the idea of, if I don't foam roll, I'm going to get hurt because foam rolling is a thing. So I need to do it and invest a bunch of time and energy. If I don't go see my physio or for my ultrasound, for my dry needling, I'm going to be tight. I'm going to have these adhesions. I'm going to get hurt more. Mm -hmm. And there's a dependency there, which also ties into the idea of it takes away your own belief in self to be resilient, right? Yeah. You get this idea of I need to be fixed as opposed to I am robust and resilient. 
shout out to resilient training labs. Um, and that may seem like a small deal, but when it comes to all of the, the psychosocial aspects of pain and injury, believing in self and having, having this idea that I'm, that we are resilient is huge. I do. And you've pegged it right there because I think I'll start here. I think that for the person who's looking for guidance, it can be like the old pendulum thing on one end. People are saying you need these things. You're broken. We got to fix you. You got to do all these forever. On the other end, I think it can sound like, or come across as all these things are bullshit. Should never do them. You should just like squat forever and squat bench deathlift squat bench and do your fives <clears throat> but i don't think i don't think it ends up being that black and white or this either or situation i don't think that foam rolling is evil i don't think dry needling is evil either i definitely don't think they are the foundation or the things that you should focus on or that you absolutely have to use but if you find that you have use for them and you are okay using your time and money towards them and that, that's okay too. But the issue is that I see tons of people who have invested without exaggeration, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dollars over the span of years. And Lord knows how many hours into these, these things. And it's one thing if they made that investment and it seemed to be true that they actually needed them. It is an entirely different thing and a moral dilemma that pisses me off when it doesn't seem to be that case or it doesn't seem like it has that solid foundation. So at the end of the day, it comes down to making sure people have the, the agency. They feel like they're capable and they're informed enough to, to say, okay, here's what I think is going on. I want to go work with somebody or get another opinion and be able to figure out who in terms of coaches, in terms of healthcare providers, they trust who they think are going to give them a good, honest opinion about what's all going on. And then even with that, they feel like they're still capable of making their own decisions in terms of how they're going to step up and, and handle the situation here and now, who they're going to bring into their corner. But also, like you said, Jordan, at the core of it, still feel, still know that they have the, the resilience and the ability to figure this out and they don't need necessarily to be reliant on anybody or anything else. Or if there's something that they, that they will be benefited from or by, they can bring them in, but they know they're going to get back to the point where they can just do what they want to do and have that freedom to enjoy it without needing to be tied to that thing or that person. Hot damn. Hot damn. Hot damn. <laughs> so we've talked about what is pain, uh, what is recovery? What are some things that we could spend our time on versus not? And kind of the nuanced take on that. No, oh, he threw it in. <laughs> the Jordan question of bomb the is day. Smiling. Oh gosh, my dreams. Um, the question of the day is, okay, but what can I actually do to not get hurt? Or how can I get hurt less, we should mm. say? Well, this is it. And so I think that's, that's a key place to start because totally makes sense and is a good thing to shoot for to get hurt less or try to avoid it. Um, we can never really reduce injury risk down to zero. So it's one of those distinctions that people will make in terms of injury risk reduction versus prevention. Excuse me, pardon me. So 
I mean, there's risk in anything. You get up out of bed, you step the wrong way, you could get hurt, right? It's one of those things. So when we train, when we play, it, we're signing off essentially on some level of risk, but it's worth it because we get to play and the benefit of training and of playing both physically and mentally and emotionally, it's worth it to us, right? So I think it's a very important conversation to have in terms of how we can drive that risk as low as possible so that we got the best odds of walking away from the poker table, chips in hand. Um, so it's, again, the unsexy stuff. It's sleep enough consistently. Um, and how much you need, it's going to vary a little bit, but again, seven to eight hours on average as a rule of thumb, probably a good thing to shoot for. Make sure you're eating enough um, in terms of overall caloric intake, getting enough protein, make sure you're fueling well in terms of the other macronutrients and getting enough water for what you got to do and for what you know works the best for your body. Um, manage your stress as best you can. And part of that's probably going to come, I imagine, for a lot of the people watching this, from your training, from playing volleyball, from doing these other things that you enjoy. So, you know, make sure you have outlets and do what you can to, to set the boundaries that you need between yourself and the other demands, work, sometimes family, friends, other expectations, because the old saying doesn't stop being true in terms of you can't pour from an empty cup. And we also know when it comes to injury risk, your risk of injury goes up when you are tired and you're run down and you just have less in the tank. doesn't mean you are going to get hurt for sure if you play or if you train on a day where you're tired or run down because your kid kept you up at 3 a.m. so you got four hours of sleep. doesn't mean you're doomed. You can, you can still go into those sessions and do just fine. But it, I think it comes down to <clears throat> being realistic on those days and having having a plan for one and also the understanding of how to adjust that plan on the fly. If you find that you're kind of sore, kind of achy, okay, maybe you adjust something so you're not breaking yourself. Um, or maybe, you know, you just take a little extra time warming up. This is a couple of examples. Jared, you're giving our audience, a, well, this specific audience maybe, but you're giving our audience a lot of credit. You're assuming that most recreational volleyball players engage in some form of resistance training. My oh, friend. you're right. You're right. My mistake. I so, realized. You know, not assuming that the person watching this needs to hear this, but for the people that do, mm. I'm active. I play volleyball. I go for walks. I don't need to train, Right. No. Right. Wrong. Right. Wrong. No. Wrong. Why? Tell me why. <laughs> so you brought it up before in one of the, uh, the segments where it's that cycle, right? When it comes to volleyball, any sport really, but volleyball, obviously care, we care about here. It's going to come with a certain set of demands. There's a whole bunch of stuff that can happen on the court. You know, it's a fluid dynamic game. You don't really know what's going to happen until it happens. You might have some ideas, but there's too many variables to accurately predict. So what that also means is you need to have a certain amount of motor, motor skill or agility and coordination and a certain amount of strength. You need an amount, a certain amount of power to be able to jump and land and you need to be able to absorb that force and then weave this all together in this magical experience that is volleyball. And then hopefully you do well in terms of the outcome, right? So at the end of the day, we can't get around the fact that you need to train to make sure you have the capacity to deal with all of those things because that is a whole shit ton 
a metric shit ton of stress in particular forms that you need to train to handle. You can avoid training and probably be fine for a while, but you are rolling the dice every single time. And I will tell you, my friend, who is not resistance training, your odds of the num- your number coming up and you getting hurt or just having an outcome you don't want are way higher if you don't do that than they are if you engage in some sort of well-structured, regular resistance training program that accounts for the demands of volleyball. So what do you think, Jordan? Was that enough of a sell to tell them that they were wrong before? But I stretch. No, (laughs) it's not the same thing. Why is it different? Because it's different demands on the body. You can stretch and, you know, there are people who, who will say it in a lot better detail and more eloquence than me. Greg Lehman is one. Stretching is one thing that puts, sure, a little bit of, of force on the muscles, but it's just a, it's a different thing. It's a very different response at the cellular level, physiological level than resistance training or power training. It is not the same. You're stupid if you continue to do it there and we you go. know better and you know Saved better. Uh, I wanted to say you're wrong. And then I said, you're stupid. Right. I had to try to say that. I'm sorry. So- the, the thing that kind of I try to tell people is there's a big difference between having access to a range and being strong at a range. Yes. So sure, you can open up your upper back and spin all the way around and, you know, do whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you have to actually have control or power in that range to resist motion, to create motion, it's a lot different than just being able to be there. So there's, there's a big specificity component dropping the big S bomb. No, oh, we said it. Well, just, just that, right. It's the, we make these, these specific adaptations to the things that we train. So if you stretch, cool, you get better at stretching. doesn't mean you get better at jumping and landing in that position or, or spiking the ball or whatever it is. You have to train those things and also do some complementary training that helps your body move in that way and produce force, absorb force. You know, it's, yeah. it's not it's, the same. There's a big balance because we need to keep up with our, our playing volume to have a protective effect, mm-hmm. but the volume that we need to keep those stresses high, we can't get that amount of volume and that much exposure by playing or chronic load of playing would be too high. So we need to find other ways to build up those systems. Yeah. That's where training comes in. We need strong legs without having to jump 8,000 times a week. And you're exactly right. It is a balancing act and it's tough to find that balance point. But this is where that the last point I was going to say, as far as how do we avoid getting hurt or reduce that risk as much as possible is work with somebody who can help you do that because we individually, do you know anybody who specializes in volleyball players? No, Um, (laughs) me either. I wish I did. Um, So when it comes down to, it on an individual level it doesn't matter the sport it doesn't matter the person we suck at being objective with ourselves by and large right i have a coach as do i 100 yeah. percent. so having somebody who you know and trust who you understand or who understands the demands of your sport and who knows what you're trying to achieve personally and can look at the situation and say hey jordan you're kind of sandbagging here you you could be pushing harder or hey jordan you're pushing really hard man i appreciate that back it off. We don't need to be picking these battles. Now we got this tournament in, in a month. Like that's where we're really going to let you loose. I need you to take it a little easier here. That's what allows you to 
work as hard as you need to cause the adaptations, make sure you have the capacity and the skill to do how you, or to perform how you want, but that you're not picking unnecessary battles and that you're not burning yourself on burning yourself out unnecessarily. Bam. And if you're not sure where to start, we have a whole series on the SNC side of things. So that's either you've already watched it and you're already saying, yeah, yeah, I know, or you should go check that out. It's pretty cool. I try a lot. All right, Jared, people should train. You should get more people to train. We're working on it. We're getting there. Um, this has been amazing. We really appreciate you coming on. Uh, we're going to make this a regular thing because people need to hear this more and more. We're going to dive into other topics. Um, if there's stuff that you want to hear about, you, yeah, you, uh, let us know. Let us know below. Send us this message and we'll uh, we'll make it happen. Till next time, Mr. Jazz. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on, man. This is fun. And yep. yeah, looking forward to the next one.